0: Hey, guys, this is part of the show where we give a shout out to and we, we basically say thank you. We uh, share the love here. What we're going to do is uh, have this segment in each of our productions and where we do, we, uh, we acknowledge you. We appreciate you. We want you to know that uh, you're streaming, Satch. You're giving to the Beef initiative, Time, Talent, and Treasure. You're boosting us You know, on podcasting 2.0. Um, If you want to continue to basically get a shout out, go ahead and give, uh, you know, stream some stats, boost us. Uh, If you have uh, some questions on how to get there, go download the Fountain App. Like I say, we are podcasting 2.0. Fountain App is a good way to introduce yourself on how you can do the value for value exchange. Uh, here we go. We've got uh, Gene Everett. At Gene Everett, looks like he might be coming from Noah Nation. He gave 333 sats. We have at Barn Miner, 1,000 sats. Thank you, Barn Miner. And then here's a big one. We've got Ron. Uh, at Ron, what he did, he, he actually came out to the summit in Georgia. Ron is 10,000 sats, 10,000 sats. He, he has the experience with each one that he's listened to. So he's been a, Very good contributor to us. Uh, He loved, uh, you know, meeting Will Harris. Uh, He met Jason with uh, Rick Ranches. He was able to basically kind of, he has a hell of a story. And I think we're going to kind of tell his story because it's a story of uh, redemption within his health. And uh, he's very passionate. He's here in Texas as well. So Ron, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Hey, here we go. Another 333 from Joel W. At Joel W., Appreciate you. And then we've got uh, Busted Canoe Seven. Uh, he loved our last show of uh, Will Harris. And actually, right now, I believe you guys are watching a little Will Harris and Texas Slim. Um, also, another 10,000 from Ron. He, uh, he basically was introduced to IBEX. It's one of our partners that we are moving forward with within the Beef Initiative platform, our technology stack. He was able to sit down with Annalise. Uh, if you guys are interested more about IBEX, you know, tune in. Uh, we can get you set up with uh, IBEX, and Annalise is one of their great ambassadors. They have a wonderful ambassador program for any producer out there that's wanting to basically kind of get on uh, with uh, the technology stack in which we've uh, basically pioneered into within the Bitcoin space. Uh, the partnerships are strong. We've got Michael with Oshi. We've got Annalise and Rye with uh IBEX, and of course, you got JP, the mastermind behind our technology stack within the Beef Initiative. To everybody out there that is contributing, that is streaming stats, that is exchanging value for value, everybody else that is also basically giving back to the Beef Initiative. We are grass roots. We are grass fed. So, hey, we started this with nothing more than writing down Texas Slim wrote something called hashtag food intelligence, the harvest of deception. We're just getting started here. Appreciate you guys. Keep the love flowing. I'll keep the content pumping. Peace. So let's uh, let's talk about 100,000 Beating Hearts. What did yeah. you just
1: say? 100,000 Beating Hearts is a video that uh, a very gifted filmmaker named Peter Bick
0: okay. did.
1: He did a series called The Carbon Cowboys. Right. And uh, the one he did on us was called 100,000 Beating Hearts. And Peter became has become a very good friend of mine. Really? And you know, we have, uh, we've had a number of people come in, do videos through the years. And uh, it's always interesting to me, you know, sometimes there'd be two van loads of people, you know, just sound, video, all kind of, Lighting, what, what the what whole of all orchestration. Te- yeah. What have all those technical people do? They're there doing it. And uh, Peter showed up in a ragged-ass automobile by himself, and uh, and did the whole deal. Just me and him. We had that umbilical cord connecting mm-hmm. us for about three days. Oh, really? And then we just became very good friends. I think he's, I think he's doing great work. How many years ago was uh, hundred thousand beating hearts? That's a good question. Time means very little to me. Now, that's uh, you, a good you thing. N- you never see a, a hog wearing a wristwatch because mm-hmm. hogs don't care about time. <laughs> And I'm not much better, but I'd say a decade really plus it's been that long. Yeah, because I, well, I had a blocker beard then.
0: Yeah, you did. You looked a lot. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to say prettier. But you, <laughs> oh yeah, much prettier. You did. Pretty. But one thing about you oh, know, well, I, I'm still I, real pretty. <laughs> you, of course you are. <laughs> You're going to start using some of that pharaoh product too for yeah, Charles. Yeah. yeah so yeah. <laughs> one thing though that you know to reflect on a hundred thousand beating hearts is that. A lot of people saw it for the first time whenever we started talking about the Beef Initiative Food Intelligence Summit that we're having here at White Oak Pastures. Today, we're here with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. Um, What you're seeing right now around us is something that's been in your family since 1866. Correct. Okay. Whenever I got... I released that video probably the same day I said we're going to have this summit here Mm -hmm. in Georgia. And I got a flood of people that were just melting their hearts were melting they they didn't even know any of this existed and that's one thing that you taught me over a year ago was market access lack thereof there's a lot of things that we don't have market access to our in our lives and by looking at history looking at the past let's talk about where we're sitting we're sitting here on your basically your ancestors land literally yeah. Exactly. And so tell us a little bit of story about that. I said 1866.
1: Take is, us from there. It's exactly right. right. So my great-grandfather came here in 1866. He had a farm about 50 miles from here that he lost in the Civil War. Uh, he was very fortunate. He had an uncle who was a medical doctor here <clears throat> that started him over here on what we call the home place, which uh-huh. is just the south end of the farm. Right. So he worked that land all his life. He turned it over to his son, who's my grandfather, Will Carter Harris, who worked the land all his life, and turned it over to his son, my dad, Will Bell Harris, who worked the land all his life, turned it over to me, Will Harris, no middle initial, Will Harris III, (laughs) and uh, I now own and run the farm with the help of two daughters, I have three daughters, but two of them and their spouses are involved. And uh, I have seven grandchildren. So my seven grandchildren are the sixth generation of my family to, to to be on the farm and own the farm. And didn't your daughters come back to the farm? Two of my three daughters yep. came back to the farm. To help yes. you yep.
0: run everything that is White Oak Pastures. That's correct.
1: And, and today, <clears throat> White Oak Pastures, 180 employees, supervised by 25 managers, supervised by seven directors, and the seven directors are me, two daughters, two in-laws, and two non-family members.
0: Whenever you started, um, let's start off, you you used in uh, 100,000 Beating Hearts Commodity Cowboy. Let's give everybody just a, a, it's not a judgment, it's not anything, it's just, you know, I come from Texas, I come from the Texas Panhandle mm-hmm. commodity cowboy country, right? Mm-hmm. What people need to understand—it's not a judgment. It's just what it is. It's kind of where we've uh, we got brought into. Your father got brought into that. Uh, you talk about that in the in the documentary, and you talk about you know somebody showed up on your father's farm and he had a bag of fertilizer, True. and that's kind of where it all started,
1: didn't it? <coughs> yeah. So <coughs> the. Uh, the way my, my daughters and I run this farm are much more similar to what my great-grandfather and grandfather, or the way they ran it, as it is compared to what my father and I, the way we ran it. Right. So <clears throat> when the, when uh, my great-grandfather and grandfather were operating the farm, it would have been really focused on the animals and the, and the, the land because that was their wealth. And the animals were the checking account the land was their savings account in the community, uh-huh. and that was their market. Right. So that was the focus, and that would that would have been what they were interested in caring for, and stewarding, and and, and perpetuating. Right. <clears throat> the and and I, my father was born in nineteen twenty, took over the farm post World War Two, and that was the real game changer in agriculture. Uh, the technology you know, that uh, World War II and the, the manufacturing capacity that had been built to uh, uh, fight the war, the war effort, could be converted to agriculture. For yeah. instance, uh, one of the re- reference you made, you know, ammoniated fertilizer was invented, I believe, in Germany and I believe in the 1880s. You can fact check that, but that's going to be close. Right. But no farmers didn't use it. They were still using guano, which is bird manure, bat manure, uh, because the ammoniated fertilizer was so expensive. The, you know Somebody smart figured out when the war was over that those munitions plants could be repurposed to make ammoniated fertilizer. So suddenly it was very cheap, and uh, fertilizer companies were formed really for the first time, chemical fertilizer companies. Right and they hired people to go out and train farmers on how to use their product, and my dad was one of those guys. And uh, he learned at a farmer meeting in 1946, he told me, uh, he would have been 26 years old, uh, uh, shown how good, how efficacious ammonium nitrate was at growing grass. And uh, from then, 1946, the we're using it in the late 90s, either he or I put ammonium nitrate fertilizer on every acre we had at least once a year and maybe multiple times a year. Right. Well, ammonium nitrate fertilizer is like steroids. I mean, the immediate benefit is very obvious. I mean, it's just the grass grows. The unintended consequences, it doesn't shrink your testicles. That's not what it does. Right. The unintended (laughs) consequences are it oxidizes the organic matter in your soil and it kills the micro or, or changes the balance kills some of the microbes in the soil some overproduce mm-hmm. and and long term it's, it's it's a negative and yeah. forget about the fact that a lot of it's going to wash down to the gulf of mexico and create a huge dead spot those are further unintended consequences
0: yeah and that's something that's transpired throughout the you know It's such a short period of time if you look about how long we've been, you know, here. How long you've been here, you know, on this land and this soil that your ancestors brought to your life. What people need to understand is if we look at this and we try to disseminate all of the things that have happened Mm -hmm. in your lifetime, my lifetime, it's pretty daunting. It's like how we got here.
1: It is. And the kind of the abbreviated way of, of thinking about it is that... Post-World War II, when so many things changed, we, my dad's generation and my generation, imposed the factory model on the farm. Uh-huh. And that had m- many things, uh, many unintended consequences that fell on the backs of the welfare of the animals, the degradation of the land and the water and the climate, and the impoverishment of rural America. uh uh-huh. Well, and one thing
0: that you know, I was I was driving here yesterday, and I come from West Texas, in the impoverishment of rural Texas. You know, it's the same as the impoverishment of rural Georgia, and you know we're here in uh, Bluffton, and Bluffton, Georgia is not big. It's it's small, but it's rural America, and you can see the decay. You can see a lot of things that most people now in our modern times they ever even give themselves the opportunity to take a stance and look at to to pause and maybe reflect say why why are we here why has rural america gone away why are we in such this industrial shift that has happened and it seems like it's happened overnight but it's been a gradual burn mm-hmm. you know it's a gradual burn well by saying that you basically introduce a gradual burn back into how this land was basically run back in 1866. Tell us about that journey.
1: So uh, the, the, the fact is uh, industrial, centralized commodity agriculture impoverished rural America. Yes, It made it economically irrelevant. It just wasn't needed anymore. And when something is irrelevant, it's going to atrophy and waste away. And mm-hmm. that's what happened to rural America. Bluffton is a fantastic example of that because this town has never had any economy other than the agrarian economy. Right. Bluffton never had a railroad, never had a factory, never had a mill. It was a prosperous, thriving little town based on the agrarian economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we started changing things, it became relevant again. Yes. So... We, we think we're good at three things and three things only. Uh, we think we're really good at animal welfare. We understand it, and I can talk to you about it all day. We think we're really good at regenerative land management. And it's just it's my passion. I can talk to you about it all day. And then we think we're good at rural community building. Yes. Now, what's interesting to me is those first two, animal, animal husbandry and land stewardship were very studied changes you know, i've been i've been involved in both for 20 years i graduated from the university of georgia college of agriculture mm-hmm. came home and practice industrial land and animal management factory farm model for 20 years and liked it less and less so i chose to change it and it was very thoughted. you know i thought about what i was going to do i never Considered the third one, which is the uh, the the rural revival, we call it. Right. Because, and I I didn't do anything to make it better, uh, intentionally. Uh, You know, the the town had been in decay literally all my life. Yeah. I was born in 1954. It started in in 1945 or 6 or whatever. So all my life, it was in decay. And I thought that was just the way it was and had no idea that anybody could do anything about it and knew damn well I couldn't do anything about it. Right. So I set about working on the things that I knew I could control, which is the animal management and land management, and noticed that the town was pro- was prospering again. And I'll use that word, prospering. Right. And what happened is uh, we... Economically, I went from two or three minimum wage employees to 180 employees, a payroll of $1,000 a thousand bucks a week to a payroll of a hundred thousand dollars a week. And it attracted great people, young people, educated, passionate people. And they needed a place to eat and sleep and shop and drink and play. And live, and we created those, and suddenly the town became like magic. It became relevant again, and uh, d- kind of didn't even notice it till it happened. Mm-hmm. And kind of people would say, "This is a nice little place," and I would say, "You know, shit, it is a nice little place." Yeah, and and, and it is. It uh, is. We, uh, not much over a decade ago, this was as literally a ghost town as you could find. You couldn't buy anything in this town except a postage stamp about two hours a day, and I never could catch them there in the post office. Uh, that was it. That was it. And there's a little peanut buying point that's open seasonally, and nothing else was here, and nobody lived here except old people. Yeah. And for the most part, people that were couldn't afford to move anywhere else, they'd inherited a house, and they were just using it up. So... Uh, So, this is interesting. This town, Bluffton, Georgia, had zero new housing starts. Right. From 1972 until 2016. Uh, This is an incorporated town, eastern Mississippi. Zero new housing starts for, what is that, 40-something years? Yeah. In 2016, two of my directors built really nice houses. So, in 2016... Bluffton, Georgia was the fastest growing city on the planet. <laughs> As a percentage. That's a perfect perspective. Yeah. It and, really is. And, and and it's quality. We got nice people. You know, we of course. We uh you know, I I I built my house in which is not in town, it's not too far down that road. I built my house in uh, nineteen eighty three. And I don't think we've ever had a key to the door. I mean, yeah. It's just been unlocked since 1983. and mm-hmm. never had a problem. You know, my Jeep's parked right over there. There's a uh, nice rifle in, in all four windows down. And if I leave it all night, it'll still be there tomorrow.
0: You feel pretty uh, peace of mind. I, you just said peace of mind.
1: Yeah, a lot of peace of mind.
0: And a lot of people don't have peace of mind these days.
1: Yeah, and, you know, and and you know, we we we've uh, that that. That lack of peace of mind you're talking about is an unintended consequence it is. Of, mm. of what we've done. Well, it's, this, it's a sense of anxiety a
0: lot of people carry with them. They, they're searching for it. They're yearning for it. And, you know, whenever I first wrote my uh, first article, The Harvest of Deception, you know, I, I talked about, you know, we can sit here all day, Will, and talk about what the hell the problem is, right? But after a certain point in time, you kind of get tired mm. of it and you've, you've gone through the full cycle, you know, and, and you, you do a lot of talks, a lot of people, you know, reach out to you. But one thing that people probably should start understanding is perspective. You know, we have the source of the seed of the issue, we got that down, it's, it's pretty, pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we're not talking about the source of the seed of the solution, right? And the source of the seed solution, once again, starts with perspective. You're not trying to feed the world, are you? No, no. Never have been, have you? Never been to go. No. And one thing that what got hijacked in people's mindsets is that we were going to go out and feed a nation whenever we started basically trying to feed the world.
1: Well, how many times have we been told the American farmer feeds the world? Yeah. I mean, it, it was that was... Uh, you. That's know, been uh, deeply seated in the culture, the mm-hmm. post World War II culture. Yeah. Is uh, you know we we feed the world. Yeah. And and never, you know, for, for me that that has never been the goal. We 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 operate. We actually. I don't I don't want to be a hypocrite here. Sure. We we actually ship product to forty eight states through mm-hmm. UPS or FedEx or whatever. Okay. Don't want But to. why? Yeah. But why do you do it? I, 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 you beat me too right. we, we don't we don't want to we uh, I do it because the demand for my product is not great enough that I can sell enough locally to make my business work uh-huh. uh, I have to, you know we have to uh, so to, to, to back up I uh, I had no debt I here a nice farm with no debt we uh, borrowed money and built uh a red-beak packing plant and a poultry packing plant, USDA inspected both here on the farm. And suddenly, I had to sell a certain amount of stuff to make it all cash flow. Right. And the demand for my product is not great enough locally in my community for, for me to sell enough to make it all work. You know, this is one of the poorest counties in the United States. Sure. So in order to do sufficient volume to make the make it all work, we ship to 48 states, but we don't want to right you know, we want to set it all as, in, as, in as close a proximity as possible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know my my business model is not highly scalable. We can talk more about that in a minute. Sure. but it is highly replicatable. So we don't need, a small number of huge white oak pastures feeding the nation and feeding the world. No. We need a lot of little white oak pastures feeding their community. And the community can be that's relative. I mean it can be a county or three counties or a state. I don't know, I don't know how all that arithmetic works out. Sure. But I do know that this highly replicatable model can be done again and again and again. And it, it doesn't work to scale it up big. That's some of the problems we got now is from, in a linear way, scaling linear, things up yeah. real big. Yeah, I
0: mean, we talk about vertical integration. You know, we talk about vertical integration from the soil to the fork. Mm-hmm. talk about vertical integration, that that same integration is the vertical integration back into health. And that's what we've lost. You know, and once again, I'm going to use the word perspective a lot because people are basically... They're thinking they're informed at certain times, and then their perspectives are based on something that probably doesn't even fit their life. It doesn't fit to where they're standing on this planet. And if you can get people grounded back into where their community is, that's where you start. And one thing, whenever you and I talked for the very first time, you said, great, you're a producer now you can produce, you're doing it in all the right ways. Maybe it is regenerative, you know, to, to scale in a, in a certain way. Maybe you can scale out a hundred, you know, a month, maybe it's a hundred, you know, a year, whatever that scale is for a producer, right? And we're talking about cattle. Well, one thing that people do not understand at this point in time in our society is the lack of market access and what that truly means. And for a year now, I've been looking at market access of everything in my life, from audio content to video mm. content to consumption models. And I break it down like that. What is my consumption model of this information? What is my consum- What market access do I have? Whenever we get into food, we don't understand that we've been basically stolen market access to the purity of the soil that is the vertical integration to our fork, which is exactly what you're providing, what you've done. Let's talk about market access, what it, what it is today, what are our hurdles that we're having to cross from your standpoint whenever you're the commodity cowboy all the way into what you are right now in the regenerative space. Let's talk about the market access so we can give that education to people for post-conference, post-summit, to where people can move out and it's a call to action. You know, your consumer demand is not going to be over here anymore to this lack of market access that you think that's the only thing. Your market access and your, your your focus of your compass is going to be in the way that we basically bring in light and educate
1: people moving here from the Beef Initiative and, of course, from White Oak Pastures. You are certainly right that market access is currently the, the biggest obstruction to this kind of agriculture taking hold. Yeah. You know, the the uh, When I started 25 or plus years ago, uh, nobody was talking about regenerative land management. Uh, we, we were very early at the party. Uh, and so so we, we were able to survive because nobody else was doing it. We were very early in as a niche marketer. Fast forward to now, uh, regenerative, regenerative land management, resilient food production, is not a household word, but it's exponentially more uh, a common subject than it was a few years. Just a few it years. Is. ago. So uh, as a result, there's a uh, a growing number of people who want to move into this this segment to to, to become. Uh, resilient food producers to, to be their own foods, very tiny little food system, supposed to be part of the big mm-hmm. international food system. And uh, and those people come here to learn. We got a nonprofit called Center for Agricultural Resilience. We put on uh, school sessions to teach, and they come here with the idea, most of them, that. If I just learn how to use regenerative land management practices out here in the field, I'll be good to go. Yeah. And and we we, we really impress on them, please don't think that. Yeah. Uh certainly it's a right of entry. Certainly you've got to figure that out and yeah. become a practitioner of it. But that's just that's just the entry level. Because I think of it like hills, secessional hills, right. So when that, that, that producer or person who wants to be a producer figures out the regenerative land management system that if his ecosystem, he thinks I'll, I'll be ready to go. I'll be ready to make my living in regenerative uh, in, uh, resilient food production. That's not true. When he gets on top of that hill, he's going to see there's another hill. And that hill is processing. Consumers don't buy hogs and cows and sheep. They buy beef and pork and lamb. So you've got the farmer, producer, rancher, has got to figure out how to make his production from the field marketable. Right. And that involves processing. Yeah. So the next idea is, well, if I get that figured out, then I will be good to go. Yeah. But it's not. There's another hill. So you get up on that hill, you say, "Uh uh-oh, market access. So I've got it, I've got, I raised them right. I got them processed and put on a really great product that's highly uh, marketable. Mm-hmm. But how do I get it to the market? Yeah. And it's very difficult. Uh, I used to think that uh, just getting wholesale grocery and they'll, that'll be good. Yeah. But the margins in wholesale grocery for us have shrunk. We were successful. We got on a, a three big national grocers right and uh they're still in all three of them but our margins have shrunk yes so that uh that market access is is critical and difficult right and you're talking
0: about whenever when you talk about wholesale you're talking probably let's say whole foods right A great, and, good example and, yeah and you were the first uh introduced into whole foods is grass-fed beef right
1: <laughs> I sold I actually sold Whole Foods Market the first pound of American grass fed beef that they marketed as American grass fed beef. Right. And the timing on that was the very early two thousands, I don't remember the date. But uh the timing on that was absolutely lucky. Mm-hmm. Just incredibly lucky. Not not well planned, just lucky. Sure. And uh and we were the uh, one of the very few people in the country raising grass-fed beef at scale that could make it monetizable. Right. So they bought they bought all I all I could produce. I mean, and we made uh, excellent margins on it because we were the only girl at that party. Yeah. And did really well with it for years. And uh, uh, but and we still I I I have shipped Whole Foods Market fresh beef every week without fail for the last 20 or so years, really. But the relationship has cooled, yes uh, because other people, especially uh, imports, mm-hmm. have come in and there's some real problems with that. You know beef can be imported into this country and marketed as American grass-fed beef mm-hmm. when it was born and raised and slaughtered in Uruguay or New Zealand or Australia. Brazil, Brazil. It's, it is. It's uh, across it the board. It now. is, it is uh, legally fraudulent. It's well, you know, and
0: and I have no problem talking about the processing centers. You mm-hmm. know, um, where I come from, you know, Texas Panhandle. You know, we've got the big four processor packers, mm-hmm. and once again, this is they they basically. This is what people don't understand. You talked about processing centers and in, in market access. Let's say in Texas, I think there's over 200 mothballed processing centers that we used to have that were community-based. Texas has 254 counties. Pretty much, you could look back, we'll say back in the 1950s, that you had over 200 microprocessing Mm -hmm. centers. It's not that we're trying to do something new. What we're doing is we're borrowing off the past. We're leveraging what they were able to do as far as, number one, feed their community and not the world. Mm-hmm. And that's how they approached it. That was their perspective, that was their intent. They didn't basically even have to worry about feeding the world, because how you feed the world is you feed your community first. And you said, you know, in the beginning you weren't into building community, but it goes hand in hand. It, hand in hand. it yeah. does, and it creates that energy, that will of energy in within, it's that vibration, you know, from, from the, the vibration from the soil, know the earth all the way to the animal all the way to us and it's never ending and the big four processor packers have basically stolen that from us a lot of people don't realize that a lot of good american beef is shipped overseas oh yeah it's incredible and they don't you know the percentages i mean maybe you know better than me as far as percentages of our beef that gets shipped overseas And then, you know, this beef that does, I call it the Brazilian cattle drive because people can kind of picture it. Mm -hmm. You know, JBS, one of the big processors, they're headquartered out of Brazil. You know, they've been settled out of court and fined probably in the last 10 years, close to half a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, this last year, they were basically settled out of court for $56 million for price manipulation during covid Nobody knows this stuff, Mm -hmm. and they don't know that 80% of our animal protein is also controlled by them. Therefore, we're not really given that market access that the rest of the world does to our beef. We're not giving market access to the beef that is raised on our soil, but we're actually recycling what is being given to us with that USDA stamp.
1: Well, that's that's right, and uh, let's let's go back to that. Sure. so if you, if you think about it, I, I, I continue to go back to this post-World War II because that's when so many things changed so dramatically. Right. And while they, before that, there weren't huge grocery store chains. Mm-hmm. There were a few regional chains. And, and uh, so we industrialized farming, which turned the, the farm into a factory mm mm-hmm. monocultural we make pigs here we make tomatoes here we make oranges here uh then we uh from the centralization perspective we closed all these county packing plants you talked about and centralized it to big locations and then we commoditized it yeah and that was essential because no longer were we were we selling was i selling my beef to the local processor we was shipping truckloads to the what we used to call the Southern State feeding area, and and they and they they had to be co-mingled. So they had to have a a, a a bottom standard there that was the uh-huh. the, the commodity level. So post World War II, the factory farm model, big food producing companies, and big grocery all started forming, and they co-evolved. Right and they' co-evolved to the extent that no one can make it without the other two, no two can make it without the other one and the the people in the grocery stores uh, many farmers say, well they're just trying to keep me out. they're trying to to not do business with me, want me not to survive I, I don't believe that's the case, right? Uh, the fact is a small farmer does not fit in those big grocery stores. Uh, a big grocery company like Costco or Walmart any of the others that we, we could name uh-huh. needs the, the guy that's handling beef for them needs to be able to pick up the phone and say I need 8 loads, 48,000 pounds each of 6 ounce fillets delivered to the following warehouses this week thank yeah. you but nobody can do that except GBS. Tyson, Purdue, the, the big the big yeah, meat company. right. So for them to say, well, I want to support Paul, Will, Harrison, White Oak Pass, and Bluffton, Georgia, is an incredible inefficiency and inconvenience for them. hmm So they're not evil people out to shut us out. The big big food may be. Yes. <laughs> they may be. Big ag may be. Yes. But it's just that we don't fit in the model. And— uh, d-
0: the model, you know, you talk about the big supermarket. I, I see a lot I've seen, I've done some research. That's what I do. <laughs> But uh, you see a lot of the supermarkets actually were established in 1971, right around that time. Yeah. And that's whenever we did. Of course, Eric Butt said, you know, hey, we're going to go fence to fence. You know, we're going to go feed the world. Yeah. You know, we're going to monocrop, yeah. you know, go big, go, go home. Big,
1: go big, yeah. get big, get out. Yeah. 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 And
0: that's it basically when in unison, symbiotically, that's when all this happened. Yeah. Maybe it was great intentions. Maybe it is something. Hey, we were the world leader in food at that time, you know, you had, we had, we had the cold war. We had so many things that a lot of younger generations don't understand that got us to where we are right now. And I get asked that all the time too, is this nefarious? So it really doesn't matter if it's nefarious or if it's just kind of the, the ways and means of things that ha- that's how they are.
1: the Yeah, okay. it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And so
0: acceptance is a key, okay. accepting that we're here and, you know, we're not, we know we're not going to change that. We're not going to overcome, you know, the vastness of the global industrial food complex. Mm-hmm. It's here to stay, and it's basically, it's moving forward in a new global industrial food shift.
1: And let's not forget that the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely opposed to these things we're talking about. Sure. The factory farm model, the centralization, the commoditization, or they are what I rail against. Yeah. But let's not forget that those things gave us a f- super efficiencies, efficiencies we shouldn't even have. Right. And that gave us obscenely cheap food, obscenely wasteful food, many, many, many uh, externalized costs. But it doesn't matter. It's cheap food. And, and we have such a huge percentage of our population is addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that. It's mean, certainly not 100% because I sell $25 million worth of stuff a year yeah. at above commodity prices. So it, it's not everybody. But I don't know if it's 99% hopelessly addicted or 89 or 79 or 49 or 20. I don't know. Yeah. And how How significant this model becomes is purely in the hands of consumers. It is. The uh, farmers can't decide, I'm going to do it different, because they can't afford to. They've got to have a market to sell into to monetize that product to cover the increased cost of production or the re- Internalized right. costs of production. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to define that. So, you know, if I put ammonium nitrate on this land, uh, I'll get a lot more production out of it. Sure. If somebody was going to wash down the chalice River to the Gulf of Mexico and kill that big zone for add to that big dead zone, this time. Now that that big dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is a cost to Humanity and civilization. Yeah, But I'm not gonna pay to clean it up That's the farmer. And that chemical company that sold me that I'm on that nitrate fertilizer ain't gonna pay to clean it up. We were all gonna pay to clean it up or suffer the consequences of it being there. That. So that's an externalized cost. Yeah. I can go down, you know, the uh, the uh, pathogens that are uh, resistant to antibiotics. Huge cost to society. Yes. Huge cost of civilization. Now, if I give subtherapeutic antibiotics to all my animals, that's going to contribute to that resistance in those uh, in those pathogens. Yes. Going to wreak havoc with medical costs. But as a farmer, I ain't going to pay it. The, the pharmaceutical company ain't going to pay it. We're all going to pay it. Mm-hmm. But I can go down the list of dozens of externalized costs that somebody else pays to cause that food to be cheaper at the checkout counter. Yes. Oh, uh, that's a, that, that segues And I, I like to use this
0: and it's, I try to be eloquent and I don't try to be judgmental, but I always like, because every, anything I say, I always, I've looked in the mirror first mm-hmm. before I say this, but I always ask people now, it's like, why do you desire what you desire? You know, and like you said, cheap food, basically, um, well, because people think it tastes good, for one. But the other thing is, is that they're truly addicted to the type of industrial food that we are producing right now. And, and the, the lack of nutritional delivery that we're, we're giving plays into what you just said. The antibiotics, the pathogens, everything that we've done, that externalized, that externalized cost is, has caught up to us. You know, you look at the health statistics of a nation. You know, and I say it all the time, 78%, you know, overweight or obese, one out of two, diabetic, pre-diabetic, here we go. You know, you can look at the stats. You can look at everything. But I don't think you can argue that the same path that we've taken since, let's, let's say, from Eric Butt saying go big or go home, that our health has declined. And, and, and are we going to reach everybody across the world with this? Are we going to create that awareness? We don't know yet. We are not trying to change the global industrial food industry. We're trying to change the individual based on basically accountability. To where we're not going to be a part of that. Let's not play a part in in those in that dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Let's not play a part into our children uh, having weaker immune systems because of all the antibodies and you know and maybe in the meat that they're eating. You know, there's so many things that we don't have to play a part into. Mm -hmm. We don't have to ask permission to exit out of that. But what we can do as consumers, and this is the biggest thing, all of this, if there is issues, if you agree that there are issues, it's because of our personal consumer demand is pointed in the wrong direction based on a sense of complacency that got us there for a desire for convenience.
1: And, and there are people out there, a lot of them, that want to do the right thing. There is. They just hadn't made the conversion in their mind. You know, uh, there's a lot of free-trade coffee sold. People pay extra for it because they want to know that the people that harvested that coffee were, were treated well and, and paid for it. Yeah. Now, free-trade coffee don't taste any better than regular coffee. <laughs> but those people feel that uh, burden of conscience. They want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are people that send uh, a lot of money every month to the ASPCA or the Humane Society because they want animals to be treated well. Uh, it, didn't, it, it doesn't do them any good other than they, they feel better about making a, a contribution to righting a, a, a wrong situation. Sure. And the same is is, is true with food. Uh, uh, Mr. Wendell Berry is a role model of mine, and I'll butcher this quote, but he says something to the effect, that consumers vote with their dollar on how they want the world to be. Yeah. Words to that effect. <clears throat> but the people who send money to buy free trade coffee or send money to the ASPCA, uh, would struggle to make that differentiation in the grocery store because of greenwashing. Yeah. You know, most thoughted, caring, passionate people want to see animals treated well. Yes. That's, that's why they in the ASPCA. Yep. You know, they want to see people treated well. They want to see the, the, the planet cleaned up. That's why there's a push against plastic bottles and, but when they go to the grocery store, they're inundated with messaging, slick, shiny, skillful, beautiful, artistic It's messaging. masterful. And I mean, people that, people that do it get paid a lot of money. They to, do. To, and, and we call it greenwashing. Yeah. And it makes it hard for people to know what to support. It does. So the people that would, if they could visit a factory farm and then visit a farm that's managed holistically, would easily say, okay, here's two counters. I can shop at this one and pay another X percent and be part of the solution. I can shop at this one and save X percent, but I'm part of the problem. Many people, probably most people, would would be part of the solution. Sure. When you go in that store, And see all that stuff, and all of us got the right words printed on it. Of course, and all of us got a beautiful picture of a green scene with a blue blue brook flowing through it, and a red barn, and a little boy fishing, and whatever else, (laughs) and a puppy, you know, a butterfly, and whatever else is beautiful. Yeah. And and they say, oh hell, this was fine. And most people have the idea that if it's in that Big name grocery store. Yeah. It's fine.
0: Of course.
1: I mean if it's in that Costco Kroger Target. Powersons
0: United, H E B, whatever it's. It's, it is it's fine. Yeah. They
1: they would not have it in the store if it wasn't fine. Exactly. And that's simply not the business those stores are in. hmm. So greenwashing is uh I've seen uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, i started my business i started transitioning from being just a commercial cattleman to this before greenwashing was a thing yeah the uh the big companies were ignoring that market share because it wasn't it just it hadn't been there before and they they didn't put forth the effort to greenwash mm-hmm. uh in the last 20 25 years since i've been, since i started they've figured out that you know, that, I want that market share. Yeah. And even if they don't, they don't want people saying, well, how do you produce yours? I mean, if, if you go to the store and there's a good grass-fed ground beef, domestically produced, et cetera, et cetera, humane, the real deal, and it's $9 a pound, and there's some $3 ground beef there. Mm-hmm. But they're saying a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, uh, if they it, 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 they they they're in the business of making people feel better about buying the industrial, commercial, centralized product, you know, and, and, that, and, and it, consumers don't have the bandwidth. I, I, I feel sorry for them. They they, you know, they, uh, uh, they I, I was the first farm in eastern Mississippi to be certified humane by Humane Farm Animal Care. I uh, Douglas started that, and when I saw that certification. I said, hell yeah. That's what I've been looking for. I quit telling people how good I am. They can just see the seal and save all that communication. Yeah. And I was a great advocate. And I tell you, we've had, at different points in time, just about every meaningful certification there is, from certified organic to... Global Animal Partnership, Step 5 Plus. We're more many of those in the country. We've had them all. And now I am really uh, opposed to certifications because that's been used to greenwash. It is. So now there are so many certifications that are such low-hanging fruit that you cannot do anything different to get certified. Yeah. So that that consumer who struggles with bandwidth goes in the store, won't spend their money on the right thing, and they look up and say, "Shit, they're all certified." I mean, this one's fine. It's cheaper. It's fine, and, and, <laughs> it and, it's, and they're buying commodity stuff yeah. that's certified. Yeah. So, uh, it, it's gone from being a what I thought was going to be a highly efficacious tool to being a weapon used against us.
0: Well, and it has. And you talked about a couple of decades, you know, for the certifications. In those two decades, our labeling laws have changed in the United States. Mm-hmm you know, you don't have to be as honest. I mean, whenever you've got a purple Dracula on a box of cereals and it's full of basically, you know, commoditized sweeteners that are killing our kids and it's nothing more a drug, but they're talking about how much vitamin B and vitamin C Mm -hmm. and all the vitamins that it's loaded with and that it's healthy for your young child, you can't compete with that. You can't compete with it in so many different ways that it is it's daunting to people it's overwhelming they don't have the bandwidth and they are they're very intentional they're trying to be intentional with it I yeah, don't yeah, think the, it's the, even the,
1: the legal the, law, the labor laws are fraudulently legal yeah. or legally fraudulent How yeah you, uh, uh, you can make it look like you want it yeah the less
0: word on uh, packaging of food is now basically the the intelligence it's true food intelligence because if you're looking at a package of food uh you know that has less you know on it and it's kind of a generalization of course but whenever i first started the beef initiative i said you know the only certification you need to do and what you need to understand is that you need to go shake a rancher's hand Because somebody like Will Harris, you know, or Jason Rick, or Justin Trammell, or Cole Bolton, everybody that's come through the Beef Initiative, first and foremost, you're an educator. And you like to talk about your husbandry of the land and of the animal itself. And once you have that relationship built with that type of person, and the type of dialogue
1: that happens from there, you don't need labels anymore. Well, you're exactly right. And you're... uh... You're right about knowing your farmer, mm-hmm. and that is so horribly uh, inconvenient for these consumers. It is. You know, you you can't you can't depend on anything you read or see. You got you got to know something about the system it came from. And thank God for social media. Yeah, thank God for social media. I don't use it much, mm-hmm. but I appreciate it. You know the. The only sword and shield that I have against greenwashing is transparency and authenticity. There you go. You, know, I need to be. I, I, I got to tell them exactly what we do. It's not all perfect. Mm-hmm. Exactly what we do and show it to them. Mm-hmm. And as you know, because you're here, I'm remote. You I know, mean, this is we're. We're 50 miles from a Walmart. Yeah. And when I say that, I'm bragging. I'm bragging. <laughs> I, I know but, it. But <laughs> but I'm also making the point that uh, you can't get 50 miles from a Walmart in many places east of Mississippi no. where we are. So that's how remote we are. Yeah. So uh, you know we we want people to come here and to get people to come here, we built cabins for them to lodge in and an RV park for them to stay in and a restaurant and a store and whatever else we could do to make it and have tours and have schools and whatever we could do to make it convenient for people to come. But still very limited. How many of them are coming here? Yeah. But there's the social media and my daughter runs it for us and she puts up everything we do. We show what's pretty. We show what's not so pretty. I'm not going to say we show the ugliest we're right. We, we try to be very fair and even handed with it and people can look at it. And you know, the, the argument would be, well, I mean, you can put anything you want to on social media. Yeah, you can. But if you have complete transparency that anybody can come look and it's on social media, you're kept honest. Yeah. I mean, on any given day, we probably got two dozen people visitors on this farm. Kicking the tires somewhere, yeah. And they can go into the slaughter plant. They can go on the kill floor. They can go in all the ain't pa- going where they want to go. Mm-hmm. There's no uh, verboten signs anywhere. Right. So that that uh, that is our. We don't we don't spend any money for advertising other than dedicating it to to social media, trying to tell them accurately what we do, and then the transparency. To to come look and see, verify. It, it is. It's just like um,
0: whenever you and I first talked, and you know, I was kind of telling you my idea for 2022, and you said, "Hey, look, let me warn you, Slim. This is this place is it's hard to get to. It's hard to get." To. And I, I said, "Perfect." Yeah. Because I I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted people mm-hmm. to basically be intentional about we're, this. We're
1: also 50 miles from a regional airport, 50 uh-huh. miles from a Holiday Inn, 50 miles right. from. Most things. Exactly. Three hours from Atlanta. Three hours. You're flying from into
0: Dustin, uh Tallahassee, um Atlanta. Albanian, Albanian, Dothan. Yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. So but we're here. We're here pre pre summit. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are coming here today. And you, you last night you, you you know, we were talking about the numbers. We're not gonna talk about the numbers, but we are having a great turnout. Yeah. And that you were very excited for that. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's hard to pull off, but what it is is extremely valuable. And you said something earlier, and I wanna kinda of segue back a little bit. You said the, the wealth used to be in the animal, the cow, the wealth used to be in the land. I ask this question all the time right now. If you're out there, not Will Harris, not White Oak Pastures, where's the value of the cow for the commodity cowboy? you, you got on what is it where is the value of the cow now where is the value It used to be in the cow itself you know the true value of the cow was truly in the cow but now since the cow has been commoditized you know uh, the grains have been commoditized the land has been commoditized where's the value of the cow anymore where's the
1: true wealth of the cow if I'm if I'm understanding that, Correctly, uh, what I would tell you is that the food system has been hijacked mm-hmm. by large international multinational corporations, mostly stock companies. Right. And uh, the part they didn't hijack was the production here in the field. Yeah. Because that's 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 where the greatest capital outlay was, with the lowest return on it. Right. So the the input side has really been hijacked. Yeah. That's, the, that's the starting of the linear system here. It's very linear, not cyclic.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's where you've got the uh, Monsanto's payer now, uh, John Deere, uh, uh, the, the, the fertilizer companies, crop insurance companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies, all the big multinational players that sell inputs into the farm yep then the farmer does what the farmer does and produces the commodity i want to talk about commodities more than a minute but produces the commodity yeah the commodity is sold to the big multinational what i call big ag that would be smithfield cargill jbs
0: Mm -hmm.
1: whoever and so they you know, they, 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 these are name brands. So yes. from name brands, on the farmers selling them back to name brands. Then they sell it to uh, probably maybe for the processors like uh, Kellogg's or PepsiCo or Coca-Cola or Unilever. Yeah. All those, those you've seen. It, we've all seen the chart on the internet that ten companies own everything. Yeah. yeah. And then they sell it to the big retailers, McDonald's and Walmart and whoever. Yeah. So you've got this linear chain, and the farmers occupy this place in the middle of it, Mm -hmm. almost in perfect competition with each other, buying from and selling to these oligopolies on either side. Yeah. So it's a really bad place to be. And that place is being increasingly marginalized in my lifetime. Sure. I've seen a, a tremendous amount of it. Yeah, I want, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, I just use the word commodity. Yes. So the, the, the big changes that occurred post World War Two were industrialization. We talked a little bit about that. Commoditization and centralization. Mm-hmm. So the industrialization. Brought the factory model to the farm. It was just hell on the land, the animals, rural community. Commoditization is what I think made the food bad. Okay. So there was a time when we fed ourselves, when if I was a, a tomato grower in Bluffton, Georgia, I wanted to raise the best tomatoes possible. Because I was going to sell those tomatoes to people here who knew me, and I not not just pride of ownership, not just hubris. I want to get more for my tomatoes. Yeah. And if I had the reputation generationally of Will Harris's tomatoes are way better than everybody else's, probably get twice as much. Yeah. There's economic incentive to make it the best it could be. And the same be true for wheat to the miller, uh, pigs to the butcher. Oranges, I don't, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you were a commodity farmer, it wasn't commodity. If you were a farmer, you wanted to to put as much value as you could into your product so you could extract it from the market and be more prosperous. Yeah. All right. It was a race to the top. Everybody trying to have the best they could have. So post-World War II, there you go again. We commoditized. And we commoditized these things so we could have big companies put them all in a big pile. Didn't sell them locally anymore. So they that, minimum standards. That's what commoditization is. Yep. A minimum standard. It's the, elite, the, the, the shittiest the food can be and still be marketable. So that created a race to the bottom because then, if you raise good stuff, you put value into the product you couldn't ex- re- extract from the market. But you couldn't have a huge ketchup factory if you didn't commoditize so you could buy thousands of tons of tomatoes from everywhere yeah so commoditization and the same with everything else rice beef pork lamb everything commoditized race to the bottom yeah and of course the last one i mentioned is centralization and that's what impoverished rural america yes that that kind of system that was commoditized and industrialized uh, Led itself to huge volumes of stuff being shipped somewhere else. And of course, that caused no money to stay locally. Yes, all the money went one way to the big inputs, and the other way to the big uh, accumulators and then processors. Yes, well, it kind of went
0: back to my question. You just you you spelled it out perfectly. You know, the commodity. The, you said the value of the tomato was in the tomato because you wanted it to be the best tomato. Yeah, well, so I understand the
1: question now. Yep. Yeah, there yeah. it was right yeah.
0: there. The value of the cow used to be mm-hmm. in the cow because mm-hmm. you wanted the cow to be the best cow in your community. Mm-hmm. That way you, you basically were known for having the best animal protein. And
1: could monetize it. Yeah, And, can you, get more and you can
0: monetize it and be more. And that made everybody basically put the value into the cow.
1: Correct. Good, good and, point. Instead of,
0: you know, instead of leveraging the input, the race to the bottom, the lowest common denominator, basically.
1: So talking about that food system, and you mentioned the fact that 80-something percent of the beef is, mm-hmm. is three or four different companies. Right. So let me tell you how my granddad and, and great-granddad ran this place. So they, they were large and prosperous farmers for their era.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, they and their employees literally slaughtered animals on the farm mm-hmm. six days a week. Yeah. Six days a week. They had it lined up. They, they started at daylight and they would slaughter a cow or a couple of hogs, a bunch of chickens, a bunch of turkeys or sheep or goat, whatever. They, whatever was ready, mm-hmm. they slaughtered it. Yeah. Then they loaded it on a wagon, used drawn wagon, and brought it two miles up the road to this town, Bluffton, where they peddled the meat. And by pedal, uh, they had a route, and they'd go by the boarding house. There were two boarding houses at that time and say, here's what we got. And they'd say, yeah, well, give me that side of bacon, give me that ham, give me that, that chuck, give me that them three chickens. And, and you know, the goal was, and sometimes they didn't do it, sometimes they sent an employee, but the goal was, don't come don't come back with anything. Sure. you got to sell it or smell it. Yep. And if you, if you brought back more than you could eat, <laughs> yeah. there's a problem. Exactly. So and my, my granddad, or great-granddad, rode a horse up in Bluffton and collected his money every Saturday. That was a weekly, weekly deal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a local food system. Yep. And it's very much like what I do today Except today, I've got internal combustion engines instead of mules, and I've got refri- uh, air conditioned refrigeration instead of covered it up with a flour sack. Yes. Yeah. And I've got uh, USDA, which is not all sweetness and light, but we you know, it's, it's necessary. Sure. And yeah. So uh, my point is that this farm was its own little tiny food system. Mm-hmm and then my dad and I were part of the big multinational food system and now we brought it back down to a very tiny little food system yeah
0: and it's 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 proof of work that's what we use a lot in our terminology you know when you know within the beef initiative you know we we talk about Store of value. We talk about uh, decentralization, mm-hmm. you know, from centralization. You've been there, you've done it, now you're leading the way. Beef Initiative is teamed up with White Oak Pastures, and we're, we're introducing, uh, you know, the education and the insight of a new store of value when it comes to sound money, you know, and, and that's Bitcoin. And everybody's always, hey, have you orange pilled? That's what they call, you know, in Bitcoin, orange pilling you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, well, that's good because, you know, everybody asks me, say, hey, have you orange-pilled Will Harris? No, we're, we're not there yet. It's not about that. It's about basically creating a, a mindset first, then a market access of understanding, and then we can move forward with the, the education. Will Harris is still educating us on that small community food system that we all need to get back to. It starts with the individual. You showed me something yesterday, and you're talking about greenwashing. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about how, moving forward, there's a lot more greenwashing coming. Let's talk about the... the Because you would already named off a couple of those mm-hmm. corporations. Let's talk yeah. about what you showed me yesterday. Yeah, so
1: I had a, a big disappointment yesterday. Yeah. Uh, uh, for, well, let, me, let me preface that by saying that I'm, I'm, I'm a fiscal conservative. I got a... When you're when you're an old, white, male, Southern farmer, everybody thinks you they they got you in the box. Uh, they sure. know exactly who you are, <laughs> and they know who you vote for, and what you eat, and what uh, news station you listen to, and they know all there's know about you. Nothing else needs to be said, mm-hmm. except they don't. You know, I'm a. a I'm a, a Second Amendment guy that's got a gay daughter you better not fuck with. Right. You know, I'm a, uh, a fiscal conservative that is a raging environmentalist. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a party. Yeah. You know, I, nobody wants me at their party. I'm on too many sides of the fence. But, and as a, as a part of being, I say that to say that I am a fiscal conservative and I really am, have a lot of trepidation about government giveaway programs. I'm also a businessman who is in the eco-services business. Yeah. And so I apply for these things, some of which I don't necessarily think was a good idea. But as a businessman, I need to, I need to take advantage of everything that my competitors are taking advantage of. You bet. So uh, there was a, uh, a grant announced earlier this year called the Climate Smart Commodity Grant. Yeah. And there hadn't been one of those before. That's a new deal. And when I saw it, I got really excited about it because it's something I want to do. So I hired Grant Ryder, and we applied. And uh, uh, I applied under White Oak Pastures and our nonprofit, which is Center for Agricultural Resilience. And the project was to uh, further expand our solar grazing and mm-hmm. teach it to others right and solar grazing is something we've been doing for about two and a half years whereas we provide vegetation management to big solar arrays big utility size solar arrays using our livestock instead of roundup and string from us right and i'm I'm kind of in love with it a little bit and i see it as a great opportunity for underserved farmers to get into farming yeah the, the hardest part economically of getting into farming is the out cash outlay, of much of which is for land. Yeah. And this gives land access to people that otherwise couldn't get it. And I want to teach people how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I applied. I was very excited about it. And yesterday they announced the recipients. This is like hundreds of millions of dollars. I can't remember the, the amount. So I'm going to read you. This is not a full list yeah. I just went through and cherry-picked. Go for it. There were some good people, I think, that got it, probably. But on the list of lead partners and major partners was, you may recognize a few of these. Uh Uh-huh. PepsiCo, Cargill, JBS, Coca-Cola, John Deere, Microsoft, ButcherBox, Nestle Purina, Walmart, Anheuser-Busch, Smithfield Foods, Blue Apron, ADM, Nutrient Ag Solution. <laughs> that's <a> fertilizer. <laughs> Target, Bell, McDonald's, Mars, Unilever, Campbell Soup, and Google. Google, <laughs> Google. So, and I, I you know, I, it 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 pissed me off. <laughs> but you know, I, I guess if your goal is to develop environmental solutions. Those multinational companies that fucked up the environment may be the best people to fix it. I guess, <laughs> I guess so. That's somebody's <laughs> reasoning. I don't, I don't, I don't prescribe to. it. Well, I, I, you know, it, it's kind of
0: it, it, it's comical to me. It's it's probably a pain point for sure for you because it kind of exposes the greenwashing that we're up against. That's it. That's it. To where it becomes daunting. It becomes something that we don't have enough bandwidth to figure this out. This is research and analysis that a lot of people just don't have time to do.
1: It is funny to me if it didn't piss me off so bad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, on that note, we're, uh, you know, we're running pretty long here, but thank you for ordering up this weather.
1: Well, it came at a great personal expense to, to create this low-humidity, cool September day here, but I'm, I'm I'm glad you're appreciative of it. I'm very appreciative of it. I don't know if that camera you have on there, that, I see a big
0: old pile of wood back there, and uh, I think we're going to have a bonfire here yeah, at the uh, that summit. Is,
1: that is a Saturday night bonfire. That's
0: a Saturday night and bonfire. We, we
1: have a bonfire. Uh-huh. It's a bonfire.
0: It's a bonfire. <laughs> I think that one, you know that that can uh, contest with the old uh, Texas A and M bonfires they used to have down they, there in College Station. To
1: see it from the satellite.
0: Yeah, they Shoot
1: can. It. Well,
0: you know, people that didn't get, well, they're going to see this after the summit. So we're, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. be kind of jealous and they're mm-hmm. going to FOMO into the next one, I guess. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. but we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot to uh, entertain this weekend. We're going to be serving up five meals from White Oak Pastures. Everybody that's coming here, you know, they're they're going to be taken care of.
1: And they're, they're slot, they're, uh, the one of our guys, this, I think is the best barbecue guy that's not on the circuit, Mm -hmm. is, uh, cooking, uh, uh, a couple of hogs that we raise right here on the farm. Right. And that hog's life, it's never been over two miles. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Food food miles are very low. And, and that's true with, with, you know, we've got a, uh, Four or five acre vegetable garden that, and uh, we raise cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, mm-hmm. chickens, turkeys, geese, chickens, ducks, plenty eggs. So most of what's cooked here is is going to be from here. Yes, and that that's that's
0: what it is. It's a perfect example of how people can point their compass, their market access, and their consumer demand in a different place. We don't have to ask for permission. People like you will
1: are leading this. <laughs> I'm going to do one more thing. Go for it. You can can cut it out if you need to. Nah, that's fine. So uh, I want to tell you that uh, uh, we sold the book rights to White Oak Pastures to Penguin, uh, Viking, they got two or three names, Mm -hmm. the big big publishing company, uh, about a year and a half ago. And they just released the manuscript to us to go back over. But it's going to be called... uh, uh, so the name of the book is going to be Bold Return to Giving a Damn. <laughs> and it's going to, it's the story of our family's farm over the 150-something years, six generations. It's going to be released in uh, next fall. Really? And it's going to be kind of an economic story, kind of a farming story, kind of a cultural story, kind of a evolution of the food system story. So I mm-hmm. uh, uh, look forward to sending you a copy
0: yeah i i can't wait um maybe you know you said the fall we're here in the fall right now a year from yeah for one year from now so before we start making bold predictions about another summit here what we're going to do is we're going to go have this summit um
1: congratulations you got a new grandbaby I do. I was number six, and I got number seven coming in about three weeks. Are you so. serious? I didn't know the 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 the, no, oh, yeah. the one coming up
0: behind. Oh my gosh! So they're when, always going to be arguing who's older. So when uh, <laughs> they have uh,
1: when my father was alive, and uh, he, he talked more like foghorn, leg, leghorn than I do. Yeah. And when they, we start calving season, he say. You've been back there in the hickory pasture. They thick on the ground back there. They thick on the ground. You met a lot of calves. Yeah. And I thought I told them these grandbabies are getting thick on the ground. Uh, <laughs> is that gonna be a total of eight? That's so uh, this will be number seven. This will be, number, that's seven. be number seven. Yeah.
0: Congratulations. It's a good number. It's a lot of fun. Well, I wanna thank you, Will. Uh we've kind of known each other for about a year now. We're just now getting to know each other a little bit more in person. Um, it's been a pleasure shaking your hand for the first time. Mm, I had a discussion the other day with somebody, you know, I I build strategy within the beef initiative. You build strategy every day, you Mm -hmm. know, with your observational science, you're an operator. But what I want people to start understanding is if you can't come out and shake Will Harris's hand, you can do it through white oak pastures. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of means and ways to get to you. There's a lot of means and ways to create a new consumer demand. Same with the Beef Initiative. If, you can't, if you're in the city, we understand not everybody can basically do what I do and what you do every day. But we want people to start entrusting that we're here and it's a digital handshake. It's something that we're here willing to do through social media, whatever it is. But what we want to do is basically let's start basically being more intentional about our consumption. Let's be more intentional about building our communities out. Community-based living is a peace of mind. I think that a lot of people are yearning for. So I, I really do respect everything you've done. Thank you for hosting us, and um, let's go have a let's go have a party.
1: Let's do that. And I just want to tell you that I really do appreciate you uh, electing to have this important event here with us. Thank
0: you. You bet.
1: And we- welcome to Bluffton.
0: It was a no-brainer. <laughs> Let's go race some hell. All
1: right. Let's do it. Let's do it.